Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I just want to appreciate you. It's the new year and you're taking time out of your busy schedule. So thank you for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that's your time. I trust that you are looking for some inspiration and we will deliver. Today's entrepreneur is not much of an entrepreneur at all, but he is a powerful, powerful leader who likes to have fun. Carrie Hayes is the president of America's for REC. Many of you are familiar with REC, the solar module manufacturer that just recently was acquired by huge Indian conglomerate Reliance. And Carrie has a super long history with REC. We're going to dig into that today. We're also going to talk about his time as a ski bum, his time in consulting and investment banking, how he learned the importance of leadership and the three pillars of leadership that support his personal philosophy and the businesses he has led. If you like this kind of information, well, you are in the right place. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show because every single week we bring you twice weekly content like this, tactical and practical to help guide you along your clean energy career. And you can learn more at mysuncast.com where we've got more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice in the clean energy economy. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Solar Warriors, I am super excited that at long last I get to have my friend, fellow Solar Warrior, longtime solar pioneer in many different arenas, Carrie Hayes from REC Solar. Join us in Suncast Nation. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. Nice to be here finally. Man, tell me about it. It's been a long time coming. I've really been, you know, watching and admiring your career. You know, we were joking offline at how many of us who are friends with you look at how uh, you're the arc of your trajectory to become sort of the head of REC in the in North America. Is it all of the Americas? The Americas, man. President of the Americas got the best title in solar. That is it's awesome. President <laughs> of the Americas is in, in some ways expected because of your work ethic, but also in other ways, just sort of, sort of funny and awesome to see folks land in roles where you're, you're a great fit because of all the things we're going to talk about, because you are a practitioner. You're not, you're not someone coming from an ivory, ivory tower. Uh, so we'll talk a lot about all that. But first, I want to get back to the roots. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, a little town, Wilmette, Illinois, on the north, north suburbs of Chicago. Shy town. Home of the blues, home of deep dish, uh, Chicago-style pizza, hot dogs, Wrigley Field, Chicago Bears. I'm actually a big Blackhawks fan. I still can't shake the uh, Chicago sports out of the out of the kid after all these years. So most of my sports teams suck, unfortunately, but uh, I still love them. The the Ditka era was a was a real uh, 
shining star. The Super Bowl Shuffle Man, 1985. I was 15 years old. It was great. That is, it's actually instructive. Did you grow up in a family of predominantly employee-minded folk or entrepreneurial-minded folk? How would you characterize the sort of the home environment or family environment? Family of four, mom, dad, and my brother. I have one older brother. Yeah, I would characterize it as an employee sort of mindset. My father was the president of the American Bar Association. No way. For like the last 10 years of his career. But he spent uh, 30 plus years at the same employer at uh, the American Bar. He worked his way up from the bottom. It's, it's kind of weird, actually, because there's some parallels to me. But he, uh, he worked his way up from the bottom, from an entry-level role. And 30 years later, he was the uh, executive director in a role that he, he rounded out his career at age 65 as the executive director. He was a, a really interesting character. He sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. But um, he had such an interesting uh, skill set, which is not unlike mine. You know, he was just a, a really strong extroverted people person, had a policy slant and had a, um, a bit of an entrepreneurial slant, but I would characterize him more as a, an employee mindset, just kind of head down, working hard, uh, et cetera. He was a great, great guy. Do you remember what conversation was like around the dinner table as a kid? Totally. How, how would you characterize it? I mean, we would talk all kinds of stuff. We would talk politics, a lot of politics at the dinner table back in those days. Mm. That's why I kind of hate politics now, because <laughs> we talked so much when I was a kid. I try not to talk entrepreneurship with my kids at the table. That's for. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of politics. And, you know, my dad was just a, um, how would I characterize him? Just a strong, very strong work ethic, very level-headed, very magnanimous, I guess is a word to describe him. Very, just nice and funny, right? He was just a, a very pleasant and fun guy to be around. Never took things too seriously. Did it feel like a lot to live up to, or did you have that sort of or position or, or sort of sensation as a kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. I actually had to process that for many years in my personal life, that I, was, I had this very high bar that I had to live up to. And I, that was part of the reason I actually, early in my career, moved back to Chicago to get a big job downtown on the 52nd floor in investment banking because I felt like I had something to prove. Yeah, you felt like you needed to show daddy that you could do it. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. That, was, that was part of it. You know, well, it's interesting because you come from a family where dad was kind of at the top of his game. You felt he had something to prove. And I come from very blue collar, middle, uh, middle America family that is like a different story, but not, not unlike yours because I still felt like I had something to prove. But it was to my dad who never got the opportunities I got. And yep. he worked hard to give me those opportunities. It's really interesting when we think about what shapes the direction, the arc of our career and our personalities, you know, and, and a lot of folks think, oh, you know, folks get started on third base and they've got an easier life. And in many ways they have an easier life financially, but there's a lot of psychological battle that goes along with the expectation of meeting a certain standard, you know? Yeah, I went to this high school, New Trier High School, you know, in the late 80s, which was sort of the, the scene of all those famous John Hughes, Hughes movies, uh, Breakfast mm. Club and yeah. 16, 16 Candles and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I kind of lived that. I was, I was Ferris Bueller at one point. But I mean, at the time, our high school was the number one or two public high school in the country. No way. So it was intense. I mean, I had a, that intense pressure early. Yeah. I found I found that that was the most pressure I ever felt academically, right? It was much easier in college and, and beyond. 
So I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but uh, it was uh, an intense experience nonetheless. And formative. I mean, honestly, that kind of that kind of rigor is missing in most kids' lives. And uh, I think, you know, you're in a position that you're in because you had learned early how to structure your life and how to structure thought and how to intermediate between different stakeholders, I would argue. I'm curious, though, did you in your teens, maybe even 20s, have a North Star, a, a job, that, a career that you always thought that you were going to be in and, and then ultimately never did? Totally. I mean, when I was like 16 or 17 years old, I went on this canoe trip in Wisconsin. I used to go up to Wisconsin, which I still think is uh, the most underrated state in America mm. for, for outdoor recreation. <clears throat> Don't tell anybody. I sort of got turned on to the outdoors, you know, kind of late in high school there. I was listening to The Grateful Dead and I'm getting into, you know, other stuff as well. But uh, I got turned on to the outdoors pretty strongly at 16, 17. And so I was sort of following that path. I was always thought I was going to do something in the outdoors. I did a Knowles semester. I came to college uh, in Colorado State in Fort Collins when I was 18 mm -hmm. years old. And then I kind of messed around my first year of college. And then I took a semester off and I did a Knowles semester, mm -hmm. a semester in the Rockies in the fall of 1989. I'm not familiar with what a Knowles semester is. Knowles is the National Outdoor Leadership School. It's, okay. uh, I guess, in some ways similar to Outward Bound. Okay. But um, no, that was that was an amazing trip for me. It, I uh, I was going through some personal stuff, but it helped me sort of uh, start cultivating my leadership skills. I mean, it is the National Outdoor Leadership School, but it was an intensive on, okay, let's go climbing for two weeks. Let's go caving for three weeks. Let's do a 32-day backpacking trip through the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming. Let's go winter camping for two weeks in the snow and survive. And so it was like all these hardcore skills of survival and wilderness living. But on the first day, I quickly learned, I mean, I was a 19-year-old, pretty high testosterone, pretty gung-ho. You know, I learned how to climb. I wanted to climb. I wanted to ski. I wanted to go, 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 right? And uh, day one, you know, I'm in this group of 18 people with people who'd never had a backpack on in their life, who'd never been on a camping trip right? Who show up for a Knowles semester. And I'm like, what? Like, how, how could this be? I quickly learned in that trip that uh, my personal motivations and personal uh, expectations, I guess, were, uh, got shelved in a hurry uh, towards the group. And the group's only going to go as fast as the slowest member. And so it was good for me to sort of reset my head around that. That didn't necessarily sink in then, but years later, I looked back at it and it taught me some valuable lessons. Also helped stoke my interest in the outdoors. So to answer your question, yeah, I always thought I was going to do something in the outdoors. I mean, I was a big rock climber, a big skier, a big kayaker. Yeah. I was way into it. And I was sort of going down that guide path in my 20s. Like, you know, how do I be a ski patroller or an outdoor guide or some, something like that? And then I took a, uh, took a little detour from that path. But that's kind of where I thought I was going to end up. Yeah, it's interesting. Two lessons there. Um, one, the ability to... to find humility in the face of reality where mm. you where your goals are concerned personal achievement goals one of my mentors usually says is the pace of the leader is the pace of the pack but the reality is animal kingdom slightly different because the others in the back will get eaten but the reality is it's kind of the weakest link uh is what defines the strength of the chain and the person that is the slowest to come along is going to define how fast like that kind of a group is going to move 
And there are folks listening right now who are already thinking about that person on their team that if not for that person, they'd be maybe a month, two year further ahead, but they had to slow down and bring someone along. And it's a normal organizational piece. Yeah. But if you flip it on its head, right, it's really interesting because oftentimes that slowest member or weakest link has the greatest turnaround success story you can imagine, right? If you are willing to uh, stoke it and uh, incentivize it and put some time and effort into, not always, but um, sometimes those are the, those are the best successes, right? Which are amazing, right? Can you give me an example of that in your, in your, you know, 20 year tenure as a leader? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to call this guy out by name. You probably know him, Brian Sharp. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So Sharpie is a great friend of mine. I haven't told this story in a long time. You'll love it. So Sharpie and I were working together uh, in the early days of RAC, the integrator. I've been at two RACs now, the integrator side and now the module side. This was about 2007 or so. And Sharpie was sort of a struggling, uh, a struggling, struggling sales guy for us. You know, I would characterize it as, you know, we were selling a bunch of residential solar mm-hmm. in the market in the early days there at, you know, nine bucks a watt, which was crazy. And he was the classic sales guy, overthinking it, real nervous, real uptight, squeezing the bat way too tight, yeah. under lots of pressure. And um, yeah, he was uh, about to get fired. I was about to fire him. No way. We went out to lunch and I, we weren't as close friends as we are now then. Right. And I took him out to lunch and I said, Sharpie, you know, you just got to relax, man. I mean, like one way or the other, it's all going to work out. You're either going to sell and hit some numbers and be totally successful and it's going to be great. uh, Or you're not and you're going to get fired and it's no big deal because there's other jobs and you're going to have a great career anyway and it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And we always laughed about that lunch because I just I basically just relaxed him. And just tell yeah. him, told him to stop overthinking it and just relax and have some fun with it. And with, literally within days, he exploded. Yeah. For those uh, who aren't familiar with REC, like he was there for a long time, almost uh, a little over six years. I think you eventually pulled him into Pristine Sun when you went there, right? Yeah. Trying to, I'm trying to hire him again now. <laughs> <laughs> he's now at STEM. Like he's, a, he's had a great, such a, such a cool career. That's a fun story, man. And like the ability for someone to mentor in that capacity to, to coach someone into a place of freedom and fun, because a lot of folks are in bondage by their job. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's me in a nutshell, right? Like I am different, I think in some capacity in, in the work world in the solar world and other careers. Right. My leadership style is very much like that. It's like fun. My my three pillars are I want to have fun first, I want to make money, and I want to win in the market. I've always had those same three pillars, and the order of those three pillars change from time to time. But having fun always is generally number one. There are times where you got to put your head down. Maybe it's not so fun. But generally speaking, I want to have fun. I want to have culture. I want to have fun teams. I want to keep it light. That's my style, right? That's a 180 from from other guys I know in this industry who are very structured and very hard driving. That works too. It's just a different it's just a different style. When I met you in 2000, I'm going to say 2013 or 14, we were hanging out at Green Tech Media Conference. I believe it was like their solar summit with Angelo Leviziano. Tell me tell me who Angelo Leviziano is. Tell everybody else. Angelo is one of the most interesting guys ever in this industry, for sure. Maybe just the most interesting guy you've ever met anyway. 
Yeah, he categorically is. So Angela is this guy who um, I'll, I'll go backwards into this. He uh, he came to California in 2005 after having successfully IPO'd Conergy in Europe. Out of his garage, he started Conergy with I think two other guys. Eventually, took it IPO and made some money, and then said the U.S. market's going to be the next big market. Came to California, poked around, met this guy Tim Ball and Christie and uh, the old David Katz from AEE, and formed Mainstream Energy, which was REC Solar, the California integrator, and and AEE the distributor. So he became the founder slash CEO. Actually, he wasn't CEO in the early days, but he later became CEO. But this is a guy, he's a crazy, crazy dude, right? This guy grew up absolutely dirt poor. He grew up in a one-room cabin with his brother on the Italian-German border. He walked like 10 miles to school or rode a bike 10 miles to school one way. He came literally from nothing, literally from nothing. And I know this because I spent a lot of time with this guy with these crazy conversations. I also know this because he's such a cheap guy. I know, the, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like he... This is a guy who IPO'd Connors. You remember? Remember that piece of the story? Yeah, yeah. That's what you're going to say. And later, I mean, now it's, you know, I'll, I'll get into it. But like he would come in the early days of REC. I was living here in, in Boulder and he would come and sleep on my floor, right? He wouldn't never get a hotel. He would sleep on my floor and... He didn't want to spend money to go out to dinner. So we would like, you know, go to a friend's house or eat ramen noodles or yeah. go to Whole Foods and steal fig bars from the bins or something. Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, and you're, it, by the way, you're how old at this point? You're like late, late, early 30s, mid 30s? Yeah. 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 It, was, it was early days of REC. I mean, it was yeah. just insane, this guy. But he had that drive, that drive to be successful that obviously came from. He's tireless. Yeah. From a, a deep place. And, you know, the story continues. He's a he's just a really interesting character and has done extremely well. It's been a long time since I've talked to him. Uh, I will never forget sitting around the table with you and Angelo, Victoria Vessel and Mike Gruneau. And we hatched a plan because Angelo, is a, he, he is a character. He loves to have fun and he loves to be un, uh, he loves to do unexpected things. And he said, what do you guys want us to want me to say in my speech tomorrow? Do you remember this? He was yeah, speaking yeah, yeah. from the stage. Yeah, and yeah. I said... Uh, we came up as a group with rubber ducks and Ecuador <laughs> and something else. And the dude, like, I totally thought he was just, you know, joshing us. He fully, in the middle of a very serious presentation, said something like, and if you can do, and he says, look, it's, it's easier than selling rubber ducks in Ecuador or something like that. It's like, it's so hilarious. That's so and it was good. so Angelo. It was like what I've come to expect from the guys. It was awesome. We did some amazing uh, personal trips together. We ran across the Grand Canyon. We did a bunch of ice climbing. You did peak to peak to peak in, in the canyon with him? We did uh, rim to rim. Rim to rim, that's what I meant. Yeah, we did rim to rim run. We, we ran quite a bit together over the years. Amazing. And got into some fun adventures together. He's a great guy. Well, we'll definitely have to have the Angelo conversation and he can tell us all the fun stories about you. You mentioned that what you didn't say was after a period of avoiding responsibility uh, by and large in, in, from your dad's perspective, I presume while ski bumming in Colorado, kudos and my, uh, my sincere um, uh, jealousy stoked, you decided to go get a job. You got a job as an investment banker at Smith, Smith Barney. Uh, bring us up to speed. I think that was around 30 is the first real job you ever had. So I'll, we'll drop, drop in there. 
Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I, I was graduated college. I ski bummed in Crested Butte for seven, eight years, and it was just amazing. I mean, I skied 100 days a year and just had an amazing run in my 20s, right? I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was great. And then I was like around 29, 30. And it was kind of the, the peak of the dot-com boom, right? The market peak and all that fun stuff in the stock market around 2000, 99, 2000. And I was like, well, I better go figure out how to get a real job now. So yeah, I mean, I sort of had in that deeply ingrained in my mind, I, I had that, I have to sort of prove to my dad or prove to myself or something that I could go back to Chicago and, and do that. So that's what I did. I literally was Tiva and, Tiva's and Shorts in Crested Butte one day to 10 interviews, somehow got the job. I, I got to tell you, I got this job, which is also a good story, but I ended up you know, at Smith Barney on the train downtown uh, on the 7, you know, 12 a.m. train, which was insane, like two weeks later. So I got to tell you this story. This is, this is actually a good one. So 10, inter- 10 interviews to get this job at Smith, up, Smith Barney. I'm up against a lot of really smart people, right? Who went to Colgate, who went to Cornell, blah, 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 blah. And I went to Colorado State University, right? And I wasn't, I was not a particularly good student either, right? So there I am, and it's the final interview. And I'm in this woman named Marsha Werner's office. I'll never forget it. It's up high in a big glass tower building downtown Chicago, overlooking the city and the lake and the whole bit. She's like, hey, Carrie, you know, so you made it to me. So you must have done something right. So good for you. And I'm the last stop here. And I'm the decision maker. I'm like, great. Well, nice to meet you. And, you know, I'm excited to be here, et cetera. She's like, I'm looking at your resume. And I just got to be honest with you. I just don't see anything on here. Like, what the hell have you been doing for like the last seven, eight, nine years? I see Crested Butte, odd jobs, blah, blah, blah. And I had, I had sort of embellished, you know, trying to make something look like I had done something besides ski every day, right? <laughs> and I'm like, and I just, I had nothing to lose. I, you know, I was like, I'm just going to be honest. And I looked her square in the eye. I said, Marsha, you know what I've been doing for the last eight years? I've been having the best time of my life. I've been skiing in this little mountain town in Southwest Colorado that you probably have never heard of called Crested Butte. I've skied 100 days a year. I have a snowmobile. I've got this whole backcountry ski tour methodology with my friends where we snowmobile up into the backcountry 10 miles and then go hike up these mountains and ski these beautiful shots and no one's around. And I told her, I mean, I got way into it, right? I told her like exactly how, what I was doing and how awesome it was. And I'll never forget. She just sat there and was like, it was a long pause at the end of this story, like a, like a very long, uncomfortable 30 second pause as she was processing. And then she goes, I wish I did that when I was your age. That sounds amazing. That sounds great. You're hired. And then I got, I got the job. So that's so good. It was great. It was great. I mean, I mean, she didn't say you're hired on the spot, but I, I did get hired. And I think my honesty in that moment, I tried, I could have tried to, you know, to bullshit her, but I told her the truth about exactly what I was doing. Right. So, Hey, you know, th- that's relevant for everyone listening right now, because we've all been in that moment where someone, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us have been in that moment where somebody questions your experience and you feel insecure about it. But the reality is every decision you've made, every place that you've been is preparing you for where you're at right now. And my journey is not Carrie's journey. Our journey is not your journey. What you've done forms 
a unique piece of the universe that somebody is looking for. And I think that's the important thing to remember when we're engaging in these conversations is that the Marsha Warners of the world sacrificed a lot of their own personal enjoyment to try and get to the place they're at. Big time. And for Carrie, it was it was that <laughs> juxtaposition that actually yeah. gave him the opportunity to take this killer role where he was making a ton of money in his early 30s and and ultimately realizing that, that that was a crucible he didn't want to be in. Right. So I think that job ended up being about three years. That's exactly right. I think this is the part where I usually will ask the question, when did you feel the calling or how did you sort of discover that solar energy was a thing and and how did you shift your career in that direction? So yeah, there I was at Smith Barney on the 52nd floor as sort of the new kid. And I started as a broker and I moved on to this investment banking team, but I was doing really well. I was like top three or 4% nationally. You know, I was at the second or third top grossing office in America. You know, I, I had made a full quick transition from ski bum to like high performing. Holy crap. I'm in like right. a big pool here. And it was intense. It was super intense, but I mean, it was good. Like I was pushing 15 hour days. I was the new guy. It was good for me. It, it taught me really how to work. And I didn't really know how to work <laughs> coming into that. But after a couple of years of that, uh, I learned very quickly how to work and how to put my head down, which was which was ultimately good for me. But yeah, so I was sitting there and I was tired and getting burnt out on it pretty quickly. But I also realized I was looking around the room and I'm looking at all these guys in their 50s and 60s and they're making, you know, multiple seven figures and they're doing really well. And they're all living kind of where I grew up in Wilmette, Winnetka, Glencoe area of the north suburbs of Chicago. And I hear these conversations and I'm like, I'm listening to them like they're kind of broke. Like, oh, I got three kids, two kids are in Harvard, one's going to Colgate. I got two BMWs in the driveway. I've got three vacation houses. I got no money. I, I always viewed it as like they're on this, this like habit trail, like this circular habit trail, like going around, going around, going around, and they're never really getting anywhere. Right. So I'm like, I don't know if I really want to be that guy. I think I want to do something different. So at the same time, I had uh, gone out to California. I play music. I'm a drummer and I've always played music. I had gone and played some music with some friends in California, up in Nevada City, California. And this guy who we played at his house was kind of a weed grower type. And he would, he had a small solar energy system. He had, he had panels and he was showing me his batteries, early battery system and an off-grid system. And he's like, I'm, I'm powering this whole thing from solar. It's like, that's kind of interesting. So I went back to Smith Barney and I started looking like, are there solar companies that are public? Is this even a thing? And there's no, there was not. There was nothing. There was a small solar market in California. There was uh, a little bit in New Jersey that had just started back in those days, but there was no real companies that were interesting. And it was just early, early days. And I said, huh. So I started really thinking about that. I'm like, I don't want to push Excel spreadsheets and push money around at Smith Barney. I need something a little more deeply satisfying, but maybe solar can hit the bill, right? I'm, I love the outdoors and I can contribute to the green of the world, right? The greening of the planet. With solar, this is obviously an industry that I would think is going to explode. It totally makes sense. Why wouldn't it explode? This is, this is a no-brainer, right? So I got that idea firmly planted in my head as I was sitting there on the 52nd floor. Then the mission was like, how the hell am I going to get into this, 
right? And so I started searching, scanning, seeking, how the hell am I going to get into this industry that doesn't really exist yet? And so I started reading about it. I started uh, taking classes that summer while I was still at Smith Barney. I took a couple weeks off, as I recall, and I went out to uh, Solar Energy International in Carbondale, Colorado with um, Johnny Weiss at the time, who was great. And I took some classes about like beginning PV 101. And I still look back at that. Those guys were really helpful in my career. I was trying to find a way into it. At the same time, I was like, all right, now I know that Smith Barney is not it. And I don't know what the next thing is. And so I I walked into Bob Ultimus was my boss. I walked into Bob's office on a a Friday at Smith Barney. And I said, Bob, I'm going to quit. And he's like, what? You, You can't quit. He's like, do you have another job? I'm like, no, don't have another job. Don't know really what I'm doing, but I just know this doesn't feel right. And he just shook it. He's like, no, 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 wait, no, no, wait, wait a minute. He's like, you kids these days, you know, you gotta, you gotta think you're the, like, you're set up. You're going to make, wait, let me walk you through this. <laughs> yeah, you're going to make all this money here. You're one of the top guys, like the top young guns nationally. You're going to make all this money. You're going to inherit all these accounts. You're going to be in this office right over here, looking at the lake. It's going to be great. Like you can't walk away from this. What are you, what are you talking about? I said, Bob, you know, it, it just doesn't, just not feeling it. Like, this is not, I don't think this is my future. He's like, go home. I do not accept your resignation. Go home this weekend. Think about it and come back on Monday. And I'm hoping you're going to change your mind. You really need to think about your future. You are really in a good spot here. You, you don't want to throw this down the trash can. So I went home and not surprisingly, I didn't change my mind. <laughs> And I came back Monday morning. I said, Bob, I really appreciate your guidance. Um, but no, this this is not me. This is not me for the long term. One of the three pillars is missing, the have fun part. Exactly. Exactly. And I, that was a big moment for me in my life. Had you already conceptualized this whole three pillars idea? Not really. I didn't really know those three pillars at that time. I was still sort of feeling out my own self and my career. Because at that time, I had this this thing in my mind where like, I remember I used to say this in my 20s, which is kind of wrong now, but I used to say like, oh, well, if you have to work anyway, you might as well just work as hard as you can and just sacrifice everything because you've got to work anyway. It was like all or nothing, right? Like work all in, not all in. Or is it, I, I've learned in my old age now that there is a lot of gray area in between these things, right? But I was sort of an all or nothing kind of mentality back then. But But that was a big moment for me because A... I had done sort of the the big job and proved to make my dad or myself or some combination thereof that I could do this. So it was it was hugely disappointing to my dad, but he never said it. You know, he was never he was so totally supportive of me, which was great. He's like, you need to do what you need to do, and I support you 100, percent which was the best thing I could have ever ever heard. But I know deep down he was like, whoa, what is this kid doing? <laughs> like he's off the deep end. Like he's nuts, right? Yeah, still what a relief that your dad was willing to give you that that support. Which was huge, which was huge for sure. So yeah, so I quit. It was a big leap and a big scary thing. I didn't have a job. The coolest thing that Bob Altimus did for me on my way out the door was he said, let me call this guy. He thought I wanted to be like a trader, which I kind of had an interest in. And I was I felt a little stifled at Smith Barney. So he's like, let me call this guy. And he called the at the time the guy who owned Citadel Capital in Chicago, which which became like one of the largest hedge funds in the world. 
his name's Ken, the guy who owns it. I forget his last name. He's like, Ken, I got this guy, Kerry, here. He's he's a trader type. He's kind of a cowboy. He's like, are you hiring over there? I mean, he like was trying to get me another job on the way out the door, which I always thought was a really cool gesture. From there, I got in my, uh, a couple months later, I got in my truck. Uh, I packed up my stuff in my truck. I drove my truck with not much plan and not much clue. I knew there was a solar market in California. I knew that's where the market was. And I had I was going through a divorce at the time. Uh, I had married my high school sweetheart. So I got divorced. I quit my big job. And I'm like, I am going to completely start over at age 35, basically. It was a big move. It was a big move. And you moved to California without a job. And I recall you were writing articles in the meantime trying and climbing trees. The journey eventually got you to REC where you basically became a lifer. But you, again, had uh, like... The Smith Barney thing was like 10 interviews. The solar industry, you had at least two choices to make. Kind of walk me through choosing REC. Yeah. So I ended up in uh, on a couch in Richmond, California, climbing trees uh, and doing tree work with my buddy, uh, Tim Richmond Lowry. in the aughts? I mean, sketchy. Like, I had never lived in California. I didn't know anything about the Bay Area. And my friend Tim's like, hey, I own this tree service. Come on out. You can sleep on my couch. You can work with me. I'll pay you like 20 bucks an hour. And you can look for your solar jobs or figure out your real life, but you can do this for a while and help me out. So I was doing that during the day, working like brutal hard work. And I was a climber, so I could climb trees. But I mean, it was working with two Guatemalan guys, myself and Tim, the four of us. And I talk about real work. I mean, that's, uh, that's real work. That's one of the things that I appreciate about you. And I know that the folks on your team who actually know your story, by the way, if you're listening to this and you are either new to the team and you or you've never heard these stories, I want you to know these stories because it's so inspiring to see someone who could have done anything, as you just described, pull yourself up from the bootstrap, start something new, be willing to climb trees and write articles for like a nobody newspaper and crested boot while you figured it out because you had decided that you wanted to be in the solar industry. Yeah. And I had a passion for it, right? I mean, that's passion fuels everything, right? I was, I wanted it. I wanted it bad. I wanted it bad. I knew it was uh, interesting. So yeah, I messed around with some articles, uh, solar energy classes at SEI, a bunch of different stuff. I actually got a job for like a, for like a month with this little company called Greenlight Solar up in San Rafael, and I just actually reconnected with Mike Allen. It was me and yeah. Mike Allen, Mike Allen who owns All Energy in in, uh, in uh, Minnesota, and Mike was like had just come off. I literally just had dinner with Mike the other day. It was great. Mike was the field goal kicker on the uh, University of Wisconsin football team and had had kicked the game-winning field goal in like the Fiesta Bowl or something. No way. And was a total like national hero. Still is, right? And he was like 20-something and I was like 30-something and we were both trying to figure out our life in solar. So I worked there for like a month, and then, it, but that wasn't really much. And then it came down to a couple months later, I had met uh, Dan Thompson at the early SPG, which was kind of one of the leaders in residential in the Bay Area yeah. back in those days. Yeah. And then, Were you there when Dylan was the Chiweller, like secretary of the front desk? I don't remember, but the guy who- Oh, but you never went there. You just met Dan. I met him. No, I actually interviewed him in, in their office in San Rafael. Oh. But the main guy was Brendan Neagle. Yeah. Brendan was the sales guy or the sales leader there. So I, I interviewed with Brendan on one side. And then- I got connected with this guy, Matthew Woods and Angelo. And so I met, I met Woods and I interviewed with him 
But then I sat in this office or in this warehouse in Sunnyvale with Angelo. And let me just uh, juxtapose these interviews, which was tells you everything you need to know. I'm in, I'm in Dan Thompson's office, the shiny glass office in San Rafael. SPG at the time was, you know, well, very big company doing really great. And he's got his cowboy boots up on the desk and he's, he's very confident, you know, pushing pretty highly egocentric. You're going to make so much money here. It's going to be so great. We're crushing it in the market. We're the best. You'll never find better. I was like, yeah, it's interesting. And then I go meet Angelo and we're sitting in this like warehouse. There's no chairs. There's no place to sit. So we'll both like grab like five gallon buckets and sit on these five gallon buckets. There's like a forklift driving by beep, 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 beep in the background. And he's like, so what do you think would be uh, interesting US markets to start in US residential? How do you think we would do that if we did something like that? So I mean, it's interestingly like, okay, this is completely entrepreneurial and different. This is going to be fun. So that's how I ended up at RAC. I think I was employee number 26 or something. Did you move down to slow? Uh, I didn't. I was living in Oakland at the time. So you were like employee one that didn't move to slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. We had a tiny office in... Uh, yeah. It, that was, it wasn't in Pismo. It was in... Uh, so been, that would even be before like Vic Pasmino and the crew joined on, right? Yeah, this was... Vic? Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, early, those super early days. Early, early days. I was number 26. Yeah. And it was... Um, yeah, I started April 1st of 2006 was my start date at REC. Wow. You guys have, I mean, REC is one of these companies like Borrego and, um, I mean, we can name a long list, that have effectively trained the modern solar industry, right? Created companies. You know, the, the list goes, is long and, and deep of incredible leaders in the solar industry that came through the doors at REC. Yeah, I mean, that it's really fun, right? It's like, I look at that early crowd and I'm really fortunate. I still work with some of some of these guys. I've hired some of these guys like Chris Macy's and Gabe Davis and Brian Gelia, who are on my team right now. And soon Sharpie. And soon Sharpie. Sharpie, I'm coming to get you if you're listening. <laughs> coming after you, Brian. And, and, uh, I hope he listens. I don't know if he listens. And, and others. He's going to listen to this one because I'm going to tag him on LinkedIn. For sure, for sure. But no, that that originally group, we had a group of like twelve guys. I at you know, outsiders used to call it frat boy solar <laughs> back in the early days. I was did not I was the non-frat boy of the crew, but it was the, you know, these good looking California guys primarily. I was probably the not good looking non-California guy. Led by guy. Matt Woods. Led by Matthew Woods, and it was this guy Max Dworkin and Greg Fisher, yeah. Kent Halliburton, myself. I didn't realize Dworkin was on that team. Holy moly. Working was there. Um, Chris Macy's. These guys all had such incredible careers. Yeah. And th that was sort of the nucleus group. And that group, we felt at the time, and maybe historically we'll say, we sort of pioneered residential solar, right? We, yeah. We, we got into the Costco uh, and the retail thing with Costco. Mm -hmm. We opened up that channel. And we were hungry, man. We were – these guys, it was funny because I was older. I already had my Smith Barney thing, right? And I was in like my mid-30s now. And all these guys were like right out of college, you know, young 20. So I was the old guy. We had this hunger of that group that we were going to win no matter what, right? We had this deep hunger to win in the market, which that competitive spirit and, and Woods give him a lot of credit. He was the focal point of that competitive edge. 
and that drive. We wanted it. We wanted to win so bad. We would do whatever it took. I mean, whatever it took, and we did. So those early years of REC were just incredibly fun. It was really cool. Did you ever imagine? Could you have engaged in a thought experiment that would lead to you running the module business that bared the same name but not the same company? <laughs> no, no, definitely you not. Guys were con- it was the biggest confusion often in the in the trade shows, right? Yeah. We, this big Norwegian company that now is no longer. We still confuse everybody. It's a confusing story because there was REC, the California, we call it REC Solar Inc., which was in 2006, the number one installer, EPC, in California. And that was a sep- completely separate company from REC, the module manufacturer from Norway, who came into the U.S. market in 2008 or nine? Maybe attacking punches and deep and deep budget, big money. They always had the best parties and the best booth. Printing money, polysilicon was incredibly. You know, I mean, four hundred dollars a kilogram. They were making life. so much, and they came in to the U.S. and Angelo engineered a sale of twenty percent of REC Inc. to REC Norway. I think it was like forty or fifty million bucks, something like that. And with that transaction, there was shared ownership now. And REC California, REC Solar Inc. California Residential System Integrator EPC started selling REC Norway solar panels into the U.S. market. And that was the conduit for REC to enter for those modules for the module business to enter into. And it slipped in there. But like, again, we come back to Angelo, the architect. And uh, it's such a fun role that he's had an opportunity to play in his career. What a crazy guy that guy is. (laughs) Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but... Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void but there's still people who don't even know about suncast i know i can hardly believe it myself (laughs) but that's where you can help me yet again there's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show if you cruise over to 
www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. We could spend another hour just talking about how you became president of REC America. So you left REC at a certain point. You went to Pristine Sun. You had a few sort of divergences. How did you get pulled back in? And I'm curious more specifically, why did you say yes to a role at REC Americas when you'd already kind of left the fold and were out on your own? I have to assume that you saw something different there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I had a good, you know, uh, let's see, eight, nine year run at the original RAC. We grew that thing from, I was 26, right? All the way up into a huge residential and commercial organization. I think it was eight, 900 people by the time it got sold to Sunrun. So the, the residential and AE was sold to Sunrun. CNI was spun out into its own private company, RACC, that was then bought by Duke. So it was a good round, but you know, in those types of environments, usually when there's a big M&A thing, it's kind of time to go or, or at least open your eyes to other opportunities. And for me, I, I had wanted to get into utility and, and development. So I did two stints. I spent some time at Pristine Sun. I spent some time at a company called Clean Focus, both of which were small utility developers, essentially. And I learned, I learned the development business. I can tell you now, I hate the development business and I would never want to do that again. Those are, you know... There are some really good developers out there. Uh, there are also a lot of very struggling developers out there. And that is probably the hardest place to play in this industry. Yeah. Very compressed margins. You're at the, you're literally the most compressed number. You're the person that gets beat up the most, unless you just have an unbelievable pipeline. Yeah. You need, you need some sort of secret sauce to be successful in those, in those environments. But there are a couple of guys, yeah. Jared Shock at Turning Point is one who does it extremely well. There are a handful of really good ones. But anyway, I learned that side of the business. Which was, uh, which was good. And I built some great teams and had some fun along the way, which is always worth the price of admission. And then um, my friend, my old friend, Chris Macy's called me from REC. Chris had been one of the early guys to jump over from REC Solar Inc. to REC Norway, the module manufacturer. He had, he had been there for six, seven, eight years. So he was like one of the first employees of REC America's and he had actually had my job. This is actually another fun story. He took the managing director of president job at REC, hated it, and quit after three months and left the company. He, was, he quit. And then he was asking me for a job at uh, Clean Focus, and we were talking about how we could work together. I mean, having that, that bond with Chris and some other guys I work with for all these years is so fun for me. I can't overstate that. So he then came back. After a three-month hiatus where he had quit, he said, all right, I made a mistake. I want to come back. So he came back. Um, and at the time, the managing director was this guy named Ken Fong, uh, who was a longtime SunPower guy. <laughs> now at Enphase, I think. Now at Enphase, correct. And um, there was a sort of a cultural mismatch there, I guess, is probably the best way to say it. And uh, Chris said, hey, you know, this, there's going to be an opportunity here. And I think you're, you'd be the perfect guy to do this. I've had this job, but I don't want this job, but I think you could do this job really well. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And that's, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. It's worth noting, REC traditionally had focused on the resi and CNI sector, not 
particular utility scale. Um, there'd been a whole like reboot of REC's module manufacturing process, moving it to a lower cost manufacturing uh, platform, we'll say, and rebooting the business, injecting new capital. Uh, a lot of folks had more or less written REC off at this point, yep. it, especially in the US resi market. You already had really the, the big Asian manufacturers um, and at, at, you know, in recent times led by Q-cells uh, as kind of the high efficiency in Solaria coming in the market. You were, you, you had to be, you had to have seen something special at REC to say, yeah, I'll go do this when REC had to rebuild their brand here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I viewed it as a blank canvas. I viewed it as a total mm. entrepreneurial moment in my career. I said, hey, I can go work with a guy, Chris, and a small team at that time who seemed like amazing people, right? Great, great talent and great people. And we don't really know what we're doing. And there is, there's a sort of like a big void, or like a vacuum of like, what the hell are we trying to do in the US and or the Americas generally? And what's our product strategy? And it just seemed like a bit of chaos and confusion. And we were pretty stagnant. And so I viewed it as like, wow, this is a huge opportunity. Like we can actually do something with this, right? We can, we can mold this, we can craft this into something cool. And I don't, I don't take full credit for that. There are other people who uh, certainly influenced it as well. And that for the sake of uh, folks not having to jump back and look at your LinkedIn while we're talking, that was circa uh, about this time of year, the fall of 2017 that we're talking about, you were kind of jumping yeah. back. I've been here for four years now. Exactly. Now, you guys just made an earth-shattering announcement about a month ago um, at the time of recording December, so sometime early November, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell me about the new platform and direction for REC and how, you know, kind of what that four years built up to? Yeah, so the four years, we completely transformed our business from a CNI slash small utility player in 72 cell to the now the number two residential player in the market. Right, we completely changed our business. We started with a product strategy discussion. How do we have a market-leading product in the residential market? We we pushed our friends in Singapore to make that product for us. Once we had the product strategy right and the right product to attack the U.S. residential market, we did just that. I hired a couple key individuals. Brian Gelia being probably the most key individual on the team. We opened up distribution, which we knew nothing about with CD, Sonapar, Wesco, among others. And now we have a market-leading product and a very robust residential business, which is awesome. For those who are unfamiliar with the general landscape of solar modules, there are folks here maybe who are coming from oil and gas. Could you outline quickly? So you said you're number two. Who's number one? Who's number three? Like, what what does that market landscape look like? And can you give a sense of scale of that piece of the business that you're going after to be number one? Yeah, so... I mean, the U.S. residential market is like a, what, a four-ish gigawatt market, four gigs this year, I think, four and a half gigs, something like this. So I'm relatively small, I guess, relative to the utility segment, you know, which is the biggest segment in the U.S. CNI is stubbornly small at two, three gigawatts, something like this. Inside residential, you know, you've got a variety of interesting players, right? You've got the big guys, you've got Sunrun, who I think is always number one. You've had a flurry of uh, M&A activity recently. And SPACs. <laughs> and SPACs, right? You got this mid, we call it the midtail, right? Mm-hmm. Guys like Titan, guys like Freedom, guys like Infinity, guys like Blue Raven. Do you consider SunPro mid-tier or are they like now I'd, top top tier? I'd say they're like mid, mid-tail. Those guys are pretty, okay. those guys are pretty good. Yeah. I, I always view it as like there's the long tail, right? Of, mm, all, of course, all, yeah, yeah. All the small guys. But then there's, there's this really interesting mid-tail that's emerged over the last right. few years in residential 
What are these? It's kind of like sun run, mid tail, long tail. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. But the mid the mid tail guys have come out of nowhere in my I mean, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but the last three, four, five years, these mid tail guys are killing it. I mean, they're doing incredible volumes with a distributed sales strategy. And there's some interesting stuff happening there for the future, which we can talk about. But I'm I'm impressed with uh, some of the volumes that these mid tail guys can drive. So anyway, you know, we were actually a player in residential before we made this whole switch. We sold to Solar City back in 2015 and 16 before my time. We always were selling to Sunrun in relatively uh, decent volumes. So we would always appear on the leaderboard of U.S. residential as someone who was there, but we weren't really there because we were just selling to like one big guy. Now we're selling container by container to hundreds of different CD, West Coast, Sonapar locations, all through just distribution is a whole nother world within the solar arena, which is fascinating to me. But we've we've been fortunate to be successful there. So I'm not sure what the U.S. resi, resi market looks like. So maybe for my edification, who's number one in the market for resi? Hanwha Q-Cells. Hanwha, that's right. I sort of assume that's right. And they have a U.S. manufacturing facility. Jinko has a U.S. facility. I presume it's mostly dedicated to utility scale. Correct. Solaria um, has come on the scene uh, with new leadership and they've got, they've got great leadership from, you know, the Silicon Valley, Sun Power sort of crew. Who else are contenders that you have to think about every day? Yeah. So the top five are Hanwha Q-Cells is number one. We're in the top five, depending on how we think about uh, some, some of our, our, our partnerships that we have in that, in that sector. Solari's in there, Silfab's in there. They're, they're an interesting c- competitor. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like these off names that you wouldn't expect yeah. are, are kind of interesting, interesting. players. Like, do, does Mission Solar, any of these guys show up? Not really. Okay. Not really. Hanwha Q-Cells is the big bogey. I love to hate on them. Yeah. I love to hate them. Yeah. We've, been, uh, of course. we've been fighting in litigation for several years. They sued us for patent infringement, uh, which I don't need to go into that uh, here today. But I, I always uh, characterize it as they really poked the beast with us a little bit. And uh, I'm I'm typically not a guy who holds a grudge, but maybe I hold a grudge on this one. <laughs> so, I, they they have been in my sight lines now for a while, and and I am very hungry to take them out in the number one slot as the uh, the number one player in residential in the U.S. All that said, and you're number two in the market, and you've completely re- like it's one of the best turnaround stories in the industry that is un- untold, candidly, of how REC the wafer. And module manufacturer, you know, historically competing against Hemlock and Vocker, like right. turned into right. the number two solar module manufacturer in the resi market in the U.S. And in a super well-respected, especially in Europe and, uh, and Southeast Asia, module manufacturer. How do you then take that next step? How does the company globally prepare to support you as you step into the number one position, which is where you have been gunning for four years? Yeah, yeah. So we've been searching for a new owner for a couple years now. And our previous owner was a company called Blue Star Chem China. There was sort of a dirty dirty little secret in the industry that we were owned by, at least partially owned by a state-owned enterprise in China. These guys were actually a great owner for us in a lot of ways because they supported us in dark times. They gave us money. I mean, solar manufacturing is a tough business, as you know better than anyone, Nico. It's feast or famine. In, in good times like today, there are margins to be made and it's, it's, it's pretty good. In normal times when pricing is going down, which it typically does, it can be tough, right? It can be tough. So it's not an easy business. The key to this business is scale. You can be very small 
or you can be very big, but you can't be in the middle because you just get killed on your on your overhead and your margins, right? So the key for us has been, okay, we, we want to scale up. We want to get big. Uh, we've got a business strategy to do it. So part of that was US, the US story and the residential story was attacking the US residential market, becoming relevant and actually making some money along the way, which has been a big success story internally. And then part of it was my boss, Jan Bicker, who's the CEO now, after Steve uh, went off into retirement up in Montana. Hi, Steve. Engineering, uh, and Steve was part of this as well, so give him some credit, but engineering a sale to an owner who wanted to grow the business and who wanted to invest and push the gas instead of sort of status quo. And that's how we came to uh, where we are today with Reliance. So a month or two ago, Reliance of India uh, purchased REC. Super exciting times for us. I can't overstate that. It's amazing. My new boss beyond my real boss, Jan, is this guy named Mukesh Ambani, who's the ninth or tenth richest guy on the planet, who's actually on, on conference calls at three in the morning and very, very much into the tactical details of our business. Reliance pledged a $10 billion investment into, into renewables over, the, over three years. And their first move, they spent about $2 billion of the 10 a month ago. They bought us. They took a controlling stake in Sterling and Wilson, an EPC. Oh, wow. I, didn't, I missed that part. Holy moly. They took a controlling stake in Ombre, a battery company in Boston. They took a controlling stake in Next Wave, a wafer manufacturer in Germany. And they're starting to assemble the upstream pieces now of uh, what our future looks like, which is obviously going to be very exciting. So we're in this fun phase of like we're feeling each other out and we're trying to figure out who we want to be now. But Part of this means massive uh, capacity growth at, at the REC side. So my job in 2022 is essentially open a U.S. factory, and that's a fun project, as you can imagine, and, and certainly a heavy lift. So I've been running around the country talking to all kinds of crazy people, including s- senators and people in D.C. and all kinds of fun Let stuff. Let me know what we need to do over in North Carolina, man. I've got some friends in the Capitol. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your state is definitely on the list. Fantastic. So yeah, Reliance is going to inject a bunch of money into us and help us grow, which is which is mm. going to be key. So you know, w- with that growth in the U.S., we're gonna we're gonna take on Hanwha Q cells and take them out in the number one spot. They should have never messed with me <laughs> in the first place. And uh, hey, if you're the leader, you've always got the the the, st- the dot on your back. That's right. That's right. So it's it's going to be fun times ahead. We're going to hire a bunch of people. Come work for us, please. We're we're going to hire you know twenty thirty people on my team. The, the factory we're going to make has six, 700 jobs, you know, wow. $200 million investment. It's, it's big growth ahead for REC. What do you see beyond REC in 2022? This is going to publish in 2022. What do you see as the, the exciting emerging trends? And maybe that's just for the resi market, or maybe it's just because you've been in the industry for 20 plus years, you have a greater sense of kind of what is, what, what seems to be under the surface and rising to, to, to show itself. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting times right now. It's look at all the M and A happening in the industry. Mm, Never before. It's so it's so frothy. So you've got all kind. I mean, Reliance buys REC and then takes a controlling stake in a bunch of other players. Then you got SunPower just bought Blue Raven. Then on the distribution side, you got Baywa just bought Beacon. You got City Electric is merging with uh, uh, Sologen, right? So all of a sudden, you know, we've We've been running all these individual companies running for a long time. These are not new companies. And in the last three or four months, you're starting to see a flurry of M&A activity. 
So that typically tells you that the market is maturing and solidifying, right? And so I think that trend continues, right? I think when you look at it objectively, it's like, who are going to be the players now? And what is the sweet spot? You see a continued, uh, a continued strong 2022 M&A uh, market. For sure. For sure. I think there's definitely more to come. And I think the pieces now start getting shaken out a little bit. If you're listening to this, who is the kind of company that should be, I think there's still a lot of folks that maybe don't even realize they should be on the market. They should be looking for the eggs that they built their company for. They should be looking for that new platform. What are the kinds of companies you believe 2022 is going to consolidate the most of? I think, I mean, we'll focus on residential just because I'm super close to it. But I think the, the um, you know, one of the most interesting things to emerge in residential is the advent of the mega sales company, right? I, I call it the mega sales company. But back in the old days when we used to sell residential, and I sold a couple hundred residential systems and living rooms, and I, that's actually my claim to fame, Nico. I'm, I think I'm the only like president managing director who actually did this stuff in, early in their career, who actually s- sat at the kitchen table and actually did it, right? But not to pat myself on the back. But I think- um, I, I concur. I think it is, it's a, it is a remarkable, credible- piece of your history, man. It's one of the reasons I'm glad to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate it. So the trend in residential in the old days, it used to be you had to be a highly technical sales guy. You had to get on the roof and measure and do all this crazy stuff to be a successful solar salesperson. Today, you've got these companies that have sort of like almost like a multi-level marketing lens at it, who have hundreds, thousands of, in some cases, of salespeople out there who don't necessarily work for one company, work for multiple companies, they rep all this different stuff. There's the red line. There's all this stuff that's happening now. We have an interview coming with Alex Williams, Solar Energy Partners. Do you know what their attrition rate is? No. He hired a thousand people in one year. A hired, his attrition rate is something, I think it, it might be 90%. Oh, Jesus. That's crazy, right? But that's, that's the whole thing. Like they literally are a, a, say a hiring and training platform. Right. That's the same as Simple Solar, right? Like yeah. there's a handful of these companies that are just killing it. And they've got, Charismatic leaders. Yeah, there's a there's a new company, Power, in uh, in yeah. California. I've, we've had John on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys are really interesting as well. So, yeah, that trend is fascinating to me. So, I think like that, you know, it's always about who's got the deal, right? It's about the origination piece of this industry is always the most valuable and uh, the most elusive, right? And so, who can streamline that the fastest? Everyone's tried to yeah. do this for so many years. You zoom out of it and you look at it from a high level and you say, "Wow, the acquisition cost." in residential solar has been high and remains yeah. high. It's still too high. It's been, I think Sunrun reports, it's over a dollar a watt still for to acquire a customer. It's crazy high. Yeah, It's too high. So maybe these models start breaking down that stubbornly high uh, cost of acquisition. But the, but the elephant in the room is that these part of the problem, pardon my friends who are working for these mega sales companies, are the mega sales companies who believe they deserve a dollar a watt in the middle. That's correct. That's correct. That has to change too. I totally agree with you. And there's some definitely some margin shaving happening there with some of these guys, right? So it's, it is an interesting dilemma for the industry to attack. But on the other hand, right, it's these mega sales companies are driving these incredible volumes, right? That you just wouldn't seem possible in the old days. And the advent of then, you know, Everyone's specializing, EPC companies, sales companies, permitting companies, everyone's got a specialization now. So it's fascinating stuff. But I, I, I think looking forward, 
over the next, call it five years, the next frontier, and I actually had a conversation with Tom Werner at SunPower about this before he retired. You know, the next frontier is how do we start consolidating all of this into something more practical, right? Our industry has always been so fragmented. We, everyone's a specialist. Everyone's a, I'm a manufacturer. I'm a sales company. I'm an EPC. I do this. I do that, right? I'm a finance shop. Who's going to be the one who figures out how to really attack the downstream? This is actually really interesting for me because we've been talking to the, uh, Mr. Ambani, among others, about this. How do, how do you actually win in the downstream? Right? How do you package up an offering with a, a service level, with a module and a performance guarantee and a warranty? How do you package that with a finance offering to wrap it all up and provide an end customer with a very compelling solution that's a no-brainer? They don't have to think about it. There's not, I'm not buying an REC panel with a solar edge inverter, with an Iron Ridge racking, with a Sonova finance product. With you know, how do yeah, it's super complicated. It's still, still super complicated, right? How do we make this easy on people and make it a, a right. one-stop shop. So I think that, you know, the, for those who like, I've, I talked to a lot of people about this and the closest analog we have right now, if we think about industries is the HVAC industry, right? And for those who haven't thought about that, just sit back and do a thought exercise on how you buy your HVAC. It's something similarly, you might buy every 10, 20 years, right? If you buy the right one, go buy a train or something like that. And there really are not a ton of options in the marketplace now. What is it, 60, 80 years on that we've had um, these industrial you know, players? And like, I know like, I'm going to go buy a train thing or I'm going to go to a HVAC guy who is going to probably recommend me one of two brands I already recognize. And I don't have to think about anything else. That's it. Like, I don't even, like, I don't care what thermostats on my wall, right? But we still have so we're still so technorati when it comes to how solar is sold, even today. We'll get there. It's coming. It's coming. I think this M and A cycle is sort of a leading indicator that stuff like this yeah. is going to start happening. Well, we're. I mean, look, you and I see it. Like, Infa is a great example. They want to be DTC, right? Direct consumer. Right. They are spending gobs of money to buy expertise. Right. They're buying companies in you know thirty to fifty million chunks. It's amazing, and they're adding weekly. They just announced this. Uh, electric vehicle charging company, right? That's the kind of consolidation in our industry where you're going to see these brands um, there on the energy conversion side that, you know, it, may, it, it still makes me wonder, right? So where is the distinction going to be in one, three, five years in our marketplace? Is there going to be one solid vertically integrated soup to nuts like REC that has an in-phase kind of product and uh, a warranty and all that stuff? I think that's what everyone's circling around right now. I think the, the, the mm -hmm. smart money in the industry is all trying to figure that out. It's funny, right? Because we went full circle. Like we mm -hmm. started in in this industry in the you know 2006 to 2010 period. There's a bunch of vertical integration early, oh, right? Yeah. Sunrun. Everybody wanted their own brand. Everyone wanted to vertically integrate, and then it totally got blown up. And everyone spread out and specialized in all their special functions. And now, ten years later, it started to come back into a more conglomerate approach. So, yeah, I think that's. That's the next frontier. Who, who, who's going to win? I have no idea, but uh, it's certainly something we can all all think about and, and speculate about how to play uh, deep downstream with a, a, a compelling offering. I think I know the answer to this, but what's right now as a leader of this organization with this war chest behind you, thanks to Reliance and an amazing track record, a fantastic product in the Alpha series that seems to only get better. What's the biggest pain point for you as a leader right now? I guess I would say the biggest pain point I have now, uh, which is a good problem to have, is people. 
right? I have this amazing, amazing team of 22 individuals who work for RAC Americas right now. I'm going to grow that like hell from here, right? We're going to grow like hell for the next couple of years. And so I got to find those people. I got to hire. So hiring is a pain point, but the, the, the coming pain point for me is I'm all about culture and fun, right? Mm-hmm. You know me, as I describe my three pillars, have fun is always going to be number one. So my challenge and maybe less of a near-term pain point, but my challenge now is how do I grow this thing and keep it light and fun? I, yeah. I find the light and fun, you know, I'm 51 years old. I've, I'm going to hang around for another five, six years before I ride off into my 13 acres in my house up in Crested Butte. But uh, how do I keep it light and fun, you know, at sort of the, the end of my solar career here? Because I think light and fun keeps people happy, keeps people motivated and actually wins from a business results perspective. That's my philosophy anyway. So how do, how do I grow it and keep that culture intact is, is the challenge. It's, again, less of a pain point. I think if an actual pain point I have now is the integration, right? I have, um, you know, I have like two work days. I have like today, and then and then every night I'm talking to Asia at nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one, two in the morning, or India. How do you manage your energy and your family for that? Not easy. Not easy. I uh, I try to take some afternoon siestas and get on my bike and do different stuff, and then tune back in late. And my wife is great because she lets me. And he takes the kids to school in the morning and lets me sleep till nine sometimes, which is great. <laughs> yeah. How, how many kids? I have three kids. I have three kids. Are they young? Yeah, twin daughters who are nine and then an 11-year-old son. Yeah, our kids are pretty much the same age. Which is uh, awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to hold in one place, right? It's a lot to be present for both the business and the family. <laughs> sure is, my friend. Sure is. Yeah. Not easy. Mm. I have a question around the people because actually this is the most common answer. People ask me, what's the most common answer? This is the most common answer. When I ask someone, what's your biggest pain point? A hundred percent of the time it is, we can't find the right people. Yeah. Which is why a lot of folks come to me and they're like, why are you not recruiting? <laughs> you should be a recruiter, man. Help me out. That's, you can't imagine how many times I've heard that. Um, but what about recruitment? What's broken in the recruitment process that, that limits, maybe it's nothing, but like, is there anything that as an industry, we could or should be doing better or that we you know, that you see as an opportunity or a gap in the recruitment process that, that makes getting the right people hard? I don't necessarily see any gaps. I guess I just give you my personal philosophy on it, right? It's like, I always want people who have good experience, who've been around for a while, who I sort of have some few mutual connections from someone I know. I guess I'm surprised though sometimes by, and again, I'm just interpreting my own personal experience out of this, but I'm surprised that there's just not that deep hunger out there. I don't know if this is a millennial thing. Maybe I'm just too jaded. You go, I don't know. But like when I was starting, I was so freaking hungry. I wanted this so bad. You know, I was just all in. Like I was going to do anything it took to be uh, to be good, right? And sacrifice whatever I need to sacrifice. I I don't see that so much anymore, right? I see the young people I talk to, and again, I'm not totally dissing them or trying to make any judgments here. But I've had a couple experiences lately where I'm kind of like, these are smart people, good backgrounds, good education, whatever, maybe not a great experience, but whatever. I would trade no experience with passion and hunger, right? But I just don't sense that deep passion and hunger sometimes. I just sense like, eh, I'm a little entitled. What are you going to do for me versus what I'm going to do for you? And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. No. So I don't know, maybe I'm interpreting more than I should, but I just have this sort of lingering thing about 
the next generation coming into this industry. I think they need to be a little hungrier. That's, that's my personal view, for right or wrong. You've been mentored by a bunch of awesome people like Angelo Viziano told me that, you're, uh, that the single best mentor in your life was Matthew Woods, which is amazing because he's younger. And a lot of people like for that, that's kind of a little bit of a, yeah. a juxtaposition of roles for a lot of folks to think that way. Talk to me a bit about how, the importance of mentors in your life and some of the key lessons or takeaways that you have from those folks. Yeah, well, my dad would be my first mentor, of course, who taught me that light and fun don't overthink it. Don't, don't stress about it, right? Keep it interesting and all those things. <clears throat> and just kind of, he had such a jovial character to him. But Woods is another interesting character in my mentorship progression. So Woods, when I first met him, Matthew, young, hard driving, up and coming executive type, grew up in California. He's from Fresno uh, or just outside of Fresno, I believe, Clovis. Um, this guy is among the best I've seen in my career, if not the single best I've seen. I mean, he, he's the full package of, has all the charisma and uh, ec- extrovert people skills that you need to be highly successful. And he rallied us around the REC flag in the early days of we're going to win it no matter what, and created this culture of we're going to win no matter what. And so the guy you'd follow into war and, and take a bullet for, right? But it also, you know, just incredibly on the other side, on the analytics and on the uh, strategy piece, and on the tactical stuff, like ability to manage very complicated and an overwhelming amount of stuff coming at him with ease, like it was nothing, and still wake up with a smile on his face. He's an interesting character. I'll, I'll make it more tactical. We used to have these performance reviews. So performance reviews are always an interesting topic, right, for an organization. A lot of people dread them, like, oh, I got to talk to my boss and have a performance review. So we would have these performance reviews and you know we're we're buddies. And he'd be like, "Okay, Carrie, we're going to have a performance review. I want you I want to set aside our friendship for the next hour. We're still going to be friends an hour from now, but we're going to put that aside from now and I'm going to tell you some really hard things for you to hear for the next hour. And I'm doing this because I want you to improve and I want you to get better, but I'm not going to hold anything back. And so get ready. I don't want you to react. I don't want you to rebut I just want you to listen for the most part and take it, okay? These were extremely hard conversations for me. I mean, he would light me up and tell me I sucked at so many different things and how badly I sucked and why I sucked and you're terrible at this and you're terrible at that and you could be so much better at this. And if you put this level of analysis into this other endeavor, you'd be so much better. I mean, he would tear me apart in that 50 minutes. And then in the last 10 minutes, he would build me back up. And I just remember, I probably had four or five of those with him back in the day. And at the time I was thinking, God, that was brutal. Like, what a jerk. (laughs) But later, later, I realized like those were incredibly good for me because he really exposed some things. You know, you got to be willing to hear that stuff, right? I mean, it's not easy to hear that stuff, what you're not good at or what people perceive that you're not good at, right? And so it was good for me to A, hear it and identify it, and then B, you know, work on correcting it. I mean, people are who they are. You have a certain skill set. You're going to be good at some things. You're not going to be good at other things. You can improve incrementally on all these things. You're never going to fundamentally change who you are. But his ability to deliver those kind of tough messages 
was really good for me. And I try to, I, I'm a little lighter in tone personally, but I do try to do that with my people too, because giving that tough feedback helps people and actually is in a net benefit to them longer term, even if they don't think it is. So that, that's one of the things he did for me, which I thought was great. But this guy is just such an ass kicker. He's actually out of the industry now. He's, um, I believe he just got the CEO role. He's the CEO of a company called apartmentlist.com. And um, he'd be a great guy for your show, even though he's out of the solar. But um, I know I've, I've got a. Li- <laughs> he's on my long list, and uh, yeah, when you think about it, uh, if if you think of it, send him a note that said he should that says he should be on the show. That'd great, be great. great guy, and, and such a, a very charismatic and just great leader for sure. So a lot of folks might listen here and think, God, Carrie just seems to fall forward, fall up, and you do have a predisposition for staying in the zone, staying upbeat and happy focused on fun. But can you tell me just for the sake of those of us who maybe have never had a a huge win in our career, like where have you run up against a brick wall and not only how do you deal with that, but how do you keep a positive mental attitude? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I had my share of failures too, right? I mean, Christine's son was probably one of them, right? I I showed up at this company. I just come off a huge successful run at uh, REC and I wanted to do something different and I was maybe chasing some shiny, bright objects around the room, maybe too much, right? And, you know, we developed this, the longest story of Pristine, we developed this amazing portfolio of small utility projects. And at the end of the day, we couldn't get financing for a variety of reasons, right? So we actually hit a brick wall and it was it was hugely disappointing, right? I had built a great team. I had done a lot of interesting strategic things with this team to exploit a niche in small utility in your state in North Carolina, right? And it didn't work, right? It didn't work. But, you know, it's like my attitude of this stuff, maybe I'm different than other people, but my attitude is like, you know what? Life is short. You're going to never, everything's not going to be exactly perfect. I am quite fortunate for the record and usually have a bit of a, a golden horseshoe. I'm very fortunate with that. I try not to knock on wood as I speak, but, um, but yeah, you pick yourself up and you start over, right? What are you going to do? Life is short. You get multiple opportunities. I view it as a, it's a new adventure. It's like, yeah, whatever. It didn't work out. And there's tons of opportunity out there. I, I, I have this conversation with a lot of people who are unemployed. And like unemployment is such a weird entity because you have this whole mental psychosis around, okay, I don't have a job. It's going to be hard for me to get a job. I'm like, no, there's, there's tons of jobs. Like, People are dying for people to work. There are tons of jobs. You can get a job tomorrow. It's more about what's the right job and where the stars align and how does your journey impact? You know, my wife used to tell me in the early days, like your energy to be open to things attracts energy and people know it. That's really good. People know it, right? You, You can sense it. Like a great example. She's unemployed intentionally right now and got called by a recruiter She's a video game artist and has a really amazing skill set and worked at Electronic Arts for years and did all this crazy stuff. And she's happily retired right now, but she got a call from a recruiter and got into a conversation with an interesting gaming company in the Bay Area who's doing some cool stuff. And for a hot minute, she was interested in it, right? She's like, oh, this is actually a cool company. But I'm like, do you really want to work there? And she's like, I don't know. But it sounds, I mean, she did not have the right energy level. And she wasn't putting it out there. And so they called her back a couple of days. I was like, you know, we're not interested, but thanks for calling. I mean, that's a great example. Like if your energy is not in it and you're not putting that energy out there, 
it doesn't come back to you. It doesn't come back to you. You have to be in the moment. You familiar with Derek Sivers from CD Baby fame? No, no. No, he has an interview with Tim Ferriss that I usually recommend to folks to go listen to if they're podcast listeners. And it's a, it's a classic. It's a great one. He talks about a number of really interesting things, especially like the extra effort for minimal gain uh, philosophy. So I would encourage folks to go listen to it. And I encourage you to go listen to it as well. Derek Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S. But the main thing that most people should take away from the interview is it's either a hell yes or a no. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's a, ver- like that's a great is- summary of what I just said. It's a hell yes or yep. a no, but it's not, it's yeah. not in between. And, and it's so hard to hold that candle up to, you know, to hold your, your, your ideas, your possibilities up to the light of that candle and say, is this a hell yes? But you just have to, it's like a mental commitment. Like it's like you have to commit mentally to something. And once you do your energy around it changes and people can sense that they can, they can feel that that's, it's part, part of how you put it out in the universe. Right. It's, a, it's important. Yeah. And you learn that not that folks aren't always Gary V talks about this. Folks aren't always going to be able to come along for the ride even if your energy is good and high, because ultimately it's still your dream. You have to, and you have to recognize like you can't expect your team is going to put in the same amount of level, level of commitment as you are as the president, even though you want them to, even though you're willing to compensate them for it. That's right. Just varying levels of commitment and ownership. What are you most proud of? I know that's a big question for someone who's had such a cool career, but is there something that stands out to you? And maybe it's not even career related, but as you think back on you know, the last 25 years you've crafted for yourself. Hmm. What are you most proud of? <laughs> well, I'll say a couple things on that. Personal pride is probably just, I ride in this bike race called the Leadville 100 every summer. I've done it for like the last five, five years, four years. And I managed to, uh, to finish that thing. It's, it's a beast. I'm pretty proud of that. That's a, a pretty fun athletic achievement. It's, uh, for me, it's more of, it just keeps me, gives me a goal to keep riding my bike every day and, and do fun stuff, but it's, it's a hard race and I'm still uh, trying to achieve a, that, that elusive sub nine hour mark, which I may never get to, which is okay if I don't, but I'm pretty proud. That's a, that's a real suffer fest and it takes a lot of time and, and effort to, uh, to make that happen every year. So I'm pretty proud of that on the work side. I'm just, I'm quite fortunate, you know, I mean, I'm, I've been really lucky in some respects, uh, but you know, so, Effort, what do they say? Uh, effort brings, you make your own luck, right? In, in some yeah. cases, mm-hmm. like I've just had a really uh, interesting run and I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by great people who have helped me along the way. Guys like Woods, guys like Chris Macy's who, who helped me bring, bring me into REC. At the end of the day, I'm super proud of the people I work with. That's what I'm most proud of, right? Mm-hmm. I have this amazing yeah. team right now and it's a family, right? We're a family. And I've had, I've had other great teams throughout my career and my different stops, right? And some of this has been the same people. And I often bring back the same people into the next round if right. I can, because I because I love it. And I'm probably going to do that. Sharpie, I'm looking at you when I'm, when I'm saying this, just, just for the record. But no, I'm incredibly proud of the team I'm part of right now. That's probably as a proud papa figure. We have such a good thing going right now. We're killing it in the market. We're hitting all my pillars, right? We're having tons of fun. We're winning. We're making money. It's like it's working, right? We're we're kind of on top of the world right now. It it probably doesn't get, you know, we're probably at the peak. It probably goes down from here because it's probably too good. But we couldn't have a better team and we couldn't have a better skill set and people who are rising to the occasion in real time. Their careers are growing, right? It's it's a very much a rising tide situation, which is great to see people 
shine, right? And really grow into roles and take more responsibility. And it gives me a lot of satisfaction for sure. That's cool. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I'd love to know, is there anything that's on your nightstand or has been particularly inspirational for you uh, or fun that you would recommend for others to read? As I was saying earlier, I'm not, yeah, I haven't really had a great book in some years on my nightstand, but the guy who is probably the most inspirational for me, who I've watched all his movies and ta- I talked to him quite a bit is Alex Honnold, right? If I can delve into Honnold for a second. So Honnold's, you probably know him. He's the, the climber who scaled El Cap and Free Solo. I knew him before through Boulder Climbing Circles, but um, this guy is so crazy, right? He's such an interesting character. He's over at my house the other day here in my living room. How many people can say that? Yeah, Hanel was over in my <laughs> Which is man. pretty fun, right? He's an old climbing buddy. Uh, we, we, we made a movie with him a couple years ago where REC donated yeah. a bunch of modules to his foundation. In Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico and also in Detroit. And we're going to continue that partnership. Okay. He has provided me with a lot of just insights into different aspects of my life. This guy is, um, talk about focused and focused, right? He's a very normal guy when you sit and meet with him, talk to him. He watches his his movies or all his little small short clips he does. But at a conversational level, um, he's one of those guys that, I don't know if you ever had this experience, like he almost like looks through you. Like when you're sitting there, he's so intense that he's like, it, 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 it's casual conversation, but it's not, right? Because he's literally like looking through, he's so hyper-focused on a mission or a goal or whatever you're into that you could just feel that intensity ooze out of this guy's pores. It's so wild, right? So uh, I'm not giving you a good book recommendation here, but I'm just telling you that some of my most uh, interesting- Have you, have you had a chance to read his book? I think it's called Alone on the Wall. I, I think I, I have it and I read parts of it. The inspiration in that book, people should, <laughs> is inspired That's, by all the stories you've heard in I your mean, living room. He was over here for a couple hours the other day and we were just talking about the various subjects, but I could just- being in that guy's presence and just feeling that intensity. And he, on one hand, is quite casual. On the other hand, he's like, can be very singular focused, obviously, to pull off what he's pulled off in his climbing career. You got to be pretty focused and pretty into it. But what a cool guy. What a cool guy. We're really excited about that partnership and going to continue to do lots of stuff with him uh, going forward. You know, you've got kids and you've got this busy life. And sometimes you sleep until 9 a.m. to recover from a 2 a.m. call. Is there anything that you do? routinely and as a morning or evening routine to kind of help you keep that energy up or stay focused? Ride my bike. Yeah. Ride my bike. Every day? I try to. I try to. I mean, when I'm, when I'm- Is it on your calendar? It's not on my calendar, but it's right here in my office. <laughs> uh, I have an, oh, so you, sometimes you'll just ride in the office. Yeah. I have an indoor setup Got where it. I'm on Zwift or Trainer Road or one of these online programs with the big screen here and the whole bit or I go outside. But um, yeah, I ride my bike as sort of my meditation- I also have my farm, right, where I can walk outside and I'm on 13 acres. So I, yeah. so I can go for a walk and actually go for a real walk. Yeah. That's like, you know, 15, 20 minutes out, outside. Not dodging cars. Which is pretty cool. Beyond the bike ride and the walk, and maybe this is more kind of leadership or work related, is there a consistent practice or habit that you have ingrained in your, in your style that gives you leverage, right? It just makes things easier. Yeah. So talking to the folks on the front lines uh, of our organization, but that also translates into talking to customers. And that's not just installer customers for us, that's end users, right? That's homeowners, 
how they feel. I mean, that's where that's where the magic happens, right? That's where you hear the real story is from the customers and from the end users. I'm often amazed in business how far away, you know, the, the information flow from point of sale all the way back up to the top gets lost in translation so quickly and so many times, right? It's it's terrible. So your ability to get in the trenches is key. I actually give Mary Powell a lot of credit. I, I don't know her personally from Sunrun, the new CEO of Sunrun, but I see I see her on Twitter and I see that she's out visiting Sunrun branches all over the country very routinely and making a, a visible public face on that. I think that's a great move. I think that's how you learn and that's how you stay present in what's, you know, what the real story is and what the real challenges are. So I love it. Good for her. Mary's such an inspiring leader. We're going to we're going to have her on the show here pretty soon, so Awesome. Very, very exciting, inspiring leader for sure. Carrie, this has been amazing and fun. Uh, I know a lot of folks are going to, uh, I anticipate that there are folks who want to somehow be able to reach you or your team. Where do you most engage and where can you be found? Is it Twitter, or LinkedIn, some hybrid of that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a LinkedIn guy. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Send mm-hmm. me a message there if you, if you like to. Uh, and I'm hiring. So come work for us. Uh-huh. Come work. I was going to say, how can the Suncast audience help? Yeah, yeah is it come work for us. We've got, uh, I think we've got five or six open jobs now, and that's going to grow to another 10 or 15 or more in the very short What's term. What's the email for your, do you have an HR email that you want folks to send their application to? Or just go to the website? Is there a link on the website? There's a link on the website or, 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 or hit me on, hit, hit me on my personal LinkedIn. Uh, gotcha. also works and uh, I'll, I'll connect there. As we are now headlong into 2022. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking yet? What's in your crystal ball? My crystal ball tells me, as we talked about earlier, there's major M&A coming that's going to surprise a lot of people in this industry, maybe even shocking M&A over over the next, call it year to 18 months. That's going to reshuffle the landscape in the market. That's one. Two, my personal prediction is module, this is more tactical, but module prices, which have seen the biggest run ever, essentially, over the last two years, run down a cost, but run up in price. Pricing has increased radically over the last two years because of ADCVD, because of Hoshine, because of all these external and internal factors. Everyone expects pricing to revert back to the mean and go back down. Mm. I'm going to take the other side of the trade. And I think this is structurally different this time. I think the industry has to get used to pricing that's higher than they think it should be and higher than they expect it to be for the long term. And I think that's a function of the anti-China rhetoric. I think that's a function of a lot of things. But I think module prices are going to stay higher for longer than most people expect. It's not wishful thinking either. It's just what I actually think is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, a lot of folks are going to be tempted to say, oh, rose-colored glasses, he needs it to be higher. But from the horse's mouth, I mean, look, I I remember being in the sales position when module prices were getting gutted. I mean, I started at training, they were at 95 cents. I left training, they were at 35 cents. And that was a period of two and a half years, right? Like talk about gutted in pricing and even in sales comp and everything else. You are not alone. Like, if everybody, if folks here haven't been listening to other episodes, this is a recurring theme, okay? And it's not just for module manufacturers. Get used to prices north of 35 cents. Get used to 
actually still be used to logistics and supply chain constraints into into I would say halfway at least through 22, we should expect that for sure the, the supply constraints we've been experiencing in 2021, which have slowed down the market, are, are not going to be freed up for an, for another little bit here. Carrie Hayes is the president of the Americas for REC, now a part of Reliance, uh, soon to be number one market share of REC of uh, Boom. Resi Solar Modules in the U.S. You heard it here first, Carrie. I am, I'm overwhelmed with opportunity uh, from this conversation and with joy. Thank you for giving me one of the three pillars, uh, and that is enjoyment. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Nico. Always a pleasure. Great to see you. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Carrie, for taking the time to join us on Suncast. I hope that you listening have really gleaned the value that Carrie just dropped in you know, more than an hour of wisdom. The guy has such a distinguished career, and I'm so honored to not only be a friend and colleague in the industry with Kerry and watched his career skyrocket, but also to be able to sit at the campfire at his feet and listen and learn from someone who I truly admire and whose career has made a lot of meaning. And it's not without the dead ends and and foibles. Uh, We didn't get into nearly as many of the hard struggles but I was really grateful for Carrie sharing the learning lessons. I loved the insights in particular from his conversations with Matthew Woods and the review process and the things he took away from that. I know that you as well are looking at the things you're taking away from this conversation. Maybe some things you're still looking to gather if you're eager to keep learning. Then you, my fellow Philomath, can find links to some of the things that we talked about on the show, other names of folks like Brian Sharpie that you may want to connect with as well. We link all of that over on the blog, as well as social media and book recommendations at mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes page. And while you're there on the website, I would like to ask for your feedback. Yes, I'd like to ask you a favor. Thank you again for giving us an hour plus of your time. If you could go to mysuncast.com forward slash survey, and leave us a listener survey, feedback on how we could make 2022 the best year ever for Suncast. I'd really appreciate it. More things to come like our uh, community solar and hydrogen series that we've been working on. You could also go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. It's the single best way that you could thank us for the work that we're doing here on Suncast you know, third way that occurs to me is you could send someone our way that might want to be a sponsor of the show or partner with us to reach more clean energy champions and solar warriors just like yourself. We do it twice a week. I hope you'll join us again for the next one. In the meantime, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>